0: Every video that you publish is potentially someone's season premiere for your channel. I realize that like if someone watches one of my videos and it's not good, they're not gonna give me another chance because they don't know me. But then the same thing happens to where your videos have to kind of keep to either a consistent quality Or they have to consistently keep getting better and this is where as a creative you have to challenge yourself and kind of humble yourself and say like you know the video is not really that good am i just putting it out to put it out because that could actually do more damage to you because i know there are tons of tv shows that i tried to give a chance and because i caught one bad episode i wrote the whole tv show off
1: hello and welcome to another episode of the golden hour podcast brought to you by the polar pro studio I'm your host, Dave Mays, and today's guest... Is my good friend Brandon Washington. Now, before we start our interview, I want to tell you about our brand new YouTube channel. If you look in the show notes of this podcast, you can find a direct link to our new channel. But if you just do a simple search for Polar Pro Golden Hour podcast hosted by Dave Mays, you can find that channel there. We have decided to do a video podcast in addition to this audio podcast. This audio podcast is going nowhere. So if you've already subscribed to the show and you love listening to it, that will still be here nothing's going away but I do think there is some value in watching the video if you want a little bit more of the nuance you know the humor the fun you know Brandon talks about a couple cameras that he holds on camera and I know for me I often watch video podcasts while I edit or while I do other things maybe on a separate monitor and just kind of let it run and you don't have to necessarily watch the whole thing but having it on YouTube at least for me is something that I've been wanting to do for a while and we did do a couple of videos early on on this show but this is going to be a fully new just kind of golden hour youtube channel i am trying to figure out if i want to just do highlight clips or the entire show let me know on social media what you guys think would you rather see the entire show in it's like full hour long format Or would you want me to maybe cut it up into three or four bite-sized pieces of some of the most interesting topics that we talk about? Let me know on social media, Dave Mays, uh, what you think about that. So if you're interested in that, use the link in the show notes below and subscribe to the YouTube channel and enable the bell notifications so you know when those episodes go live. I'm going to try to release the podcast in the audio form and the video form at the exact same time if I can. Uh, But yeah, so go over there, check it out. I got my interview with Craig Adams and Brandon Washington on there right now. So go check it out on YouTube All right, back to our guest, Brandon Washington, full-time filmmaker, DP, director, and YouTuber from Houston, Texas. He has a production company and does all sorts of videos in Houston, but recently he's been going into overhaul on his YouTube channel, and he's seen some explosive growth. He's even hired an editor and built out a custom studio space. We talk all about it in this episode of the Golden Hour Podcast. So without any further ado, let's listen in on my conversation with brandon washington dude brandon washington we're here today on the golden hour podcast thanks for being here man yeah man no problem thanks for having me you're like my oldest youtube friend you're you and justin reeves (laughs) yeah i i actually was just
0: telling somebody about that story how we just like met randomly um in vegas at nab back when you could still go to vegas and have nab
1: (laughs) yes i miss those days I know i was uh, a new youtuber at the time i started only a couple months prior to that and i was watching a lot of canon reviews 1dx reviews i was shooting on the 1dc at the time and so your channel popped up all the time because you were like making a ton of 1dx mark 2 content and so i recognized your face as soon as i saw you we were just like walking down the strip not even at an ab and I saw you. Yeah, and I was like, "That's are, right." Are you Brandon? I think we were out
0: filming or something. We were yeah. filming at like the the Bellagio fountain or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we just kind of hit it off, and then um, throughout the rest of that week, I guess we just kind of just hung out and saw each other, and that was the beginning of our friendship. <laughs> yeah. <It's laughs> and crazy. then uh, from there, I mean, you came out to California once, and we did a shoot, and I almost broke your really nice Ray Bans. Uh, <laughs> he uh he yes. was, you were telling me about like these ray-bans that your wife bought you and they're really nice you know they're expensive and i was like cool and that guy was holding them and i just dropped them i don't even know how it happened but you know i'm a clumsy boy so <laughs> <laughs> it's all good still got those glasses love those glasses cool and the scratches from me remind you of me so there you go yeah now now it tells a story so <laughs> so, Brandon, you, uh, are, you've are you done all sorts of different things in the film industry. You've been doing YouTube content now for a couple years. You're a freelancer. You shoot real estate, music videos, documentaries, films, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, tell me about yourself. How did you get started into this filmmaking game? Um,
0: So, I actually got started in filmmaking kind of uh, more so like initially starting out in front of the camera, which is kind of different for most people. Um, So before I was a filmmaker, I was actually a professional dancer. And so I did like b-boying, hip-hopping, I was going on tours and all this stuff. And around that same time, YouTube really started popping up. And what I found was that like a lot of the big dancers at the time were posting their choreography, their performances on YouTube. So I was like, I want to do the same. So I bought a camera and started trying to film myself and realize how difficult that was. Um, and also, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I decided I was gonna just like practice filming, but like of my friends. And so I started making dance videos for like all my dancer friends. And I had a huge like crew and just uh, like this big network of people I could work with. And I just started shooting dance video after dance video after dance video and started finding that I actually enjoyed being behind the camera and editing the footage more than actually doing the dancing. And uh, over like probably maybe a year's worth of time, I realized that most of the videos I was uploading, I wasn't actually in, and I was actually enjoying just creating stories and shooting these videos for other people. And so that was initially how I like picked up a camera and really just kind of got started.
1: I had no idea you were a b-boy. You still crack moves every once in a while? Uh, when I try, I feel like I
0: like crack my knees a little bit more. <laughs> so, the age thing is definitely starting to uh
1: to catch yeah. up to me. So, I'm
0: not as uh flexible and nimble as
1: I used to be. <laughs> That's amazing. I had I really had no idea. I know you um you started differently than most people. You weren't like You know, it wasn't like a passion your whole life, right? Like growing up, I want to be a filmmaker kind of a thing. No, definitely not. I actually
0: didn't buy my first camera until I graduated high school, which, you know, I remember specifically knowing that there was like a film and a photography class at my at my high school and they did not interest me at all. Like it did not seem like fun. It didn't seem cool. Um, I was too busy like being a jock and and doing my dancing on the side. And uh, it's one of the like small regrets I have because like I wish I would have started a little bit younger. Um, just because when you're younger and you you don't have you know bills and family and everything else going on, you have more room to make mistakes and to learn the hard way. Um, but once you start having more things on your plate, it becomes a lot harder to make some of those mistakes.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, you're sitting across from, uh, one of those guys that had no, uh, personal life in school and just made after effects projects in high school. And, uh, you know, I, I don't regret it, but I definitely like had no personal life. So, I mean, there's a balance, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I was doing magic in, uh, After Effects, like, nonstop in high school, so. um, Oh, yeah, that's right. I remember you (laughs) did, like, a magic trick at NAB and, like, completely destroyed my brain. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was on one of your videos, right? Yeah, yeah, I think we actually posted that. That was amazing. So tell me about your YouTube journey because that's how a lot of people listening to this may know you as. Obviously, you do a lot of other things, but um, what kind of got you into YouTube from the camera review filmmaker kind of space? Cause obviously going from B-boy to, uh, to that, there had to be some sort of transition. So, yeah.
0: So, I mean, I think just like any, any filmmaker, anybody who makes videos, um, uh, you look to YouTube to kind of be that platform for, you know, uploading content. And initially when I was starting, um, my channel, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just was kind of making some you know random videos i was testing cameras testing drones at the time and just needed a place to like publish it so i could go back later and watch it or share it with friends and things like that um and so like my first couple videos were just very random um i also know it like i went through like a small phase where i tried vlogging because you know casey did it and so everybody did it (laughs) um and i tried vlogging and realized very quickly that i'm not that good at it or i just really didn't enjoy it as much um and i think for me it primarily was i just at that time didn't really have my own voice yet but for what really made the big jump for me was um it was when the dji mavic first came out the very first one this was like the first foldable drone uh small compact uh something you could throw in a backpack and go with and um I ordered mine like the day it came out and just like with most new products, uh, I think they announced it in like maybe June or July and then it didn't come out until like October. So like, it was like months before most people really got theirs. And so I, because I ordered mine so early, I was one of the first few people to actually get it. And so I decided I'm gonna try this review thing. I've seen other people do reviews. I'm just gonna put one out there and just kind of see what happens. And at the time, I think most of my videos were like maybe getting 50 to 100 views, something like that. And um, I got my drone in, I uploaded the video. It was pretty close. It's probably the end of October going into November. Um, I uploaded it kind of during holiday time and just put it out there. Didn't think twice about it. And I think it was like the next day, the video had like 2000 views. and it like broke my brain (laughs) and then like a couple like hours later it was at like five thousand views and i was just like what's going on and then like strangers were commenting on it and i was like what do i do with this and like the video just kind of took off and for like the longest time that was actually like my highest viewed video on youtube and it was kind of like uh, an eye-opening moment to where it was like oh, you can post things on the internet and reach people you've never actually interacted with before. It was like, this YouTube thing is actually real. And so from there, I was just like, well, I like making content about cameras and filmmaking, but can you build a whole channel around it? And through other channels like yours and you know, um, Film Riot and, and other channels that were out at the time, I realized like, oh, I can just like review camera stuff. I can talk about the things that I'm passionate about with other people who are equally passionate about it and put it out there and learn from other people in the comments and kind of build a community. And so it kind of happened because like one random video got more views than I ever thought a video could of mine could ever really get. But it was definitely like, an awesome moment because it's kind of taken me on this last like couple year journey and I've learned so
1: much from it. Dude, that's insane. Yeah. I mean, the same thing happened to me too. Just the bug of kind of that addictive, (laughs) uh, cycle of posting something that you know is relevant that people are searching for and learning how to find those, those things. I know for you, like I said, you really got kind of in this Canon niche, um, can you talk about that when you kind of purchased the 1DX and uh, started making content around that? Because that was pretty, you know, you had a ton of great videos on, on that and the gimbal and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I found that like with YouTube, at least for me, and I know this, isn't, this doesn't work the same for every channel, but for me... Um, my channel would do very well and I felt like I made the biggest impact when I didn't just make one video about a product, but I made multiple videos about the product. Um, because m- I found that like the reason why I use YouTube was typically to like research something. And I almost never just watch one video to research it. I'm typically watching multiple videos researching about a topic. And so if I could make multiple videos that can help people whether that's about how well the camera does in low light, how it does with photography, how it does with film, how it does with slow motion, how do you balance it on certain gimbals, if you can or not. Um, It really seemed to like leverage people's natural want to kind of binge content. Um, And so it was kind of like giving people like bingeable content but also like educational and kind of timely and informative content that also was beneficial. And so I've seen that success run through multiple different pieces of gear that I get excited about. You know, I I, I mean I, obviously as you mentioned I did it with the 1DX Mark II, but I also did the same thing with the Sony A7 III, I did the same thing with the Black Magic uh, and you know that's kind of been like my 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 favorite thing to do is it allows me to Like, as I finish a video, because I think this happens to every person who ever makes a video, as soon as you hit, you know, render, you think, oh man, I should have did this, or I should have did that, or "Ah, I could have talked about this too. And the nice thing about YouTube is when you have those thoughts, you can just make another video. And so that's literally what I do. I I mean, I finish a video. I try to make every video as good as it possibly can be. But then once the video is done and then that natural creative and that curiosity kind of sparks for another topic within that same space, I just then at that point decide, oh, now let's go make another awesome video.
1: I remember you're the first person to tell me um, to almost ask a question in a video, even if you know the answer to it, just to be like, um, you know, I don't remember um, what the... uh, specs are on this one thing, let me know in the comments down below or whatever. (laughs) Like I would I would do that every once in a while, like accidentally, like in quotes, you know, say, Oh, you know what, I I don't remember what uh this camera is related to or whatever. Let me know in the comments. And it's just like little things like that to get the audience more engaged. I even remember you had a video where it was I think it was on the black magic and it kind of like you made a mistake or something. Maybe you said something wrong and uh you told me that the, like, the engagement and the views on it were, like, way more than normal because people were kind of drawn to the negative topic and, like, people were commenting about the thing you got wrong and then you were able to make a follow-up video, like, correcting your error or whatever and... Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah,
0: actually so that just happened again and it sometimes it just happens organically and I just decide not to fix it. Mm. So like the other day I actually just put out a video um, talking about, you know, the C70 and talking about Black Magic and a couple other things. And in the video I said that the only way to actually uh, review Black Magic raw footage is in DaVinci and which is not right it's actually you can also do it in premiere but when i said it in the video um i didn't catch it until i was editing and i could have decided to like you know just edit it out but i actually decided to leave it in because i knew somebody else would comment Mm -hmm. and correct me (laughs) um and sure enough like the third comment was about how you can use it in premiere Uh uh-huh And I got so many additional comments after that of people saying, no, 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 you can also do it in Premiere. And it was like, (laughs) they weren't even reading like the, you know, 15 other people who said it before them. Uh They just wanted to make their comment known. And I honestly think that that is like a a good thing. Like, I think it's good to leave mistakes in your videos, even though sometimes maybe if you catch it great and you can fix it, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's okay to leave them in there because I think a lot of times the the median of watching videos, especially like YouTubers, is you feel like you're having a conversation, but you don't always get a chance to input. And when you give people that opportunity to input, whether that's correcting you or giving you a suggestion or, you know, whatever, fill in the blank um what it does is it allows them to have that that open dialogue with you now and feel like they're contributing to the content which I think especially in our space we're all creators and we all want to contribute to Mm. creative pieces of work and so I think if you can give people that opportunity whether that's like I said correcting you because of a mistake (laughs) that you made in the video I don't think it's a bad thing
1: so about, I don't know, a couple months ago, I noticed your your upload frequency started getting more. Um, what happened? Did you just decide recently to kind of go back headfirst into YouTube? Yeah. So YouTube has always been a balance
0: issue for me. Um, as you mentioned earlier, like so, I run a production company full time. It's what I do, uh, and so I shoot a lot of local commercials here in the Houston area. And that takes up a huge chunk of my time. And typically, what happens is when commercial work slows down, YouTube ramps up, and then when commercial work picks back up, YouTube ramps back down. Mm-hmm. And that's always been like a struggle for me. And so, what I did recently was I actually like actually hired an editor. Wow! And nice. initially, um, this was something that you told me to do like <laughs> two years ago, a year and a half yep. ago. Um, but you know, uh, when I hired the editor, it really did change everything because it forced me to take out the the um, the excuse of "well, I don't have time to edit the video," mm-hmm. because now I can pass it off to the editor. But then, what also it helped me out with as far as the entire process was, I went through this like roadmap of looking at all of my excuses and then solving them. So that way I could not have an excuse not to create content. So for example, like right now we're in my office, we're in my, my office at my house. So it's first of all, it's in my house, it's not external. So that way, like the excuse of, well, it's raining and I don't wanna drive out there is gone. Um, all of my lights in this studio are in a permanent location. Like they don't come out. And that was a huge one for me because I would typically like tear down my YouTube studio because that'd be all the gear I had, go shoot commercial projects, and then I'd have to come home and then I really wouldn't want to build it all out again. So I built out a studio where things do not move. Um, The camera that I'm actually filming on is just a Blackmagic 4K. So inexpensive camera, great quality. And this allows me as well to just like have no excuses. This camera stays in the office. My audio setup here all stays in the office and it's not my like production gear. So it kind of eliminated those excuses. So between eliminating my excuses, having an editor and then, you know, just kind of making a plan for if there was any type of an excuse that I could possibly try to make to say, oh, I can't make a video because I would then just say, let's spend the money and solve it. Um, because I mean, I realized I was spending so much money on like gear, whether that was gimbals or lights or sliders or or new cameras and new lenses. And like, I just decided like a while ago, I wanted to buy like a really nice camera. Actually, I wanted to buy the, the Komodo, but I decided not to when it when it still had the white version. I decided not to spend the money on the Komodo at that time and say, "Hey, let's actually take that same budget." Uh, I think I had had saved up roughly like four to five thousand dollars at the time for it. And I was like, "Let's take that same budget and let's solve all of our YouTube issues." So that way, I can just sit down, create videos without any issues, and then just. Once I have all my YouTube stuff solved, then we'll save again, and then we'll go buy the Komodo at that time. And surprisingly, it didn't take that long, which is why now I actually have, like, the production model, which Heck I think it. I like a lot more anyway.
1: Yeah, I like it. I like it, too. It's it's more professional-looking. I mean, the white one's, like, pretty sick because it's, like, a Stormtrooper. Um, and then I think there was one that I really wanted. I think the, the neon orange one, I really liked that color. Um, yeah. But, uh, and just the... Like for Instagram, having a camera that looks like that is good uh, for Instagram posts. But, you know, for, to show a production set, it's not the same. Yeah. yeah. But when you're showing up on site that's why I think like those colorful Komodos would be they're so perfect. I wish that they would sell them like I would pay extra for it as a YouTuber, like having a camera like that is actually cool because like. You know, people just love to lust after the colors, but it's so dumb how humans are th- with colors. I think eventually the somebody will sick, come though. out with a wrap for it. I think somebody oh, yeah. will just wrap it. Oh, that's That'll a be great idea. That's a great idea. Um, I, I do absolutely want to get into the Komodo because it's one of my favorite cameras. And I feel like you and I have very similar taste in uh, cameras. Um, but before we get away from that, I do want to talk about what you just said because like I think that's so valuable and so important for everybody listening and I think no matter what like no matter what level you're at in your YouTube journey you can do this you don't have to spend you know six thousand four thousand dollars you can maybe have still one camera but maybe buy an extra tripod buy some extra lights you don't have to spend a ton of money on lights anymore lights have gotten so cheap now on amazon just go watch one of caleb pike's videos and he'll tell you a list of lights that are like below 50 dollars now that are amazing um oh i can tell you specifically he inspired like a huge chunk of my overall
0: setup mm. um And I will also say that like my production gear is, you know, it's pretty pricey, but that's because I shoot pretty high end, you know, commercials here in the area. But like the lights that I use for just creating my YouTube content Mm -hmm. are super inexpensive. Mm. and i i did that purposefully like i didn't feel like i needed like you know an aperture 300d yeah. to be my
1: key light for a youtube video <laughs> even I though just, everybody has one
0: <laughs> yeah even like i own one and it sits in a bag most of the time because i take it on production jobs. but yeah, for exactly. youtube i didn't need that so i went with something a lot more affordable totally um and you know it's it really is like you don't need a lot. You just have to think through your setup just a Mm -hmm. little bit, Mm -hmm. figure out the small details you need, figure out what your budget is, and then just build everything around it so that way you just don't have to tear it down. Like I found that that was like the biggest hurdle for most people It's like making YouTube videos are difficult because every time you make a video, you have to build out your set. Mm -hmm. And if you do have to build out your set, that's time and energy that gets wasted instead of using that towards the creativity Uh, and so kind of getting rid of those those issues so like the second an idea comes to your mind you're like oh i want to make a video about this while you're still inspired get a place where you can sit down and actually make a video in a moment's notice um, so that way you don't have to overthink
1: it i've talked to so many up-and-coming creators and that's the number one thing that i like to like in part is make sure you have something whether it's a corner in your bedroom or in my case right now as we're filming this uh podcast in my closet with a green screen behind me um i don't know if you could tell but this is my uh my closet my walk-in closet it's the best most quietest room in the house so um just find a space that you can set up and just make it your own and make it just turnkey. That's kind of the number one thing I've noticed about even all the YouTubers on the higher end, they have a set that's just there Mm -hmm. and ready to go. And so in your case, if you're a full-time, um, you know, director, freelance shooter, and you own this production company, it does make sense to have essentially two full pieces of kit, one for that. And then one for this, because, like you said it's just there's nothing worse than <laughs> late at night like taking your gear out and setting it up or or packing it down you know last minute maybe you shot a video the the night before for a YouTube video and then the next morning you have a, a big production shoot and so you got to like stay up all night and pack it down it's just a yeah, pain Yeah and I butt. think
0: a lot of people can even like just do it over time so it doesn't even have to all be done like at once like if it's like at one time you buy a light specifically for YouTube. And then that and then you still have to use some of your production gear, but you know you get this one light that's set up just for YouTube or like a tripod that you leave at home just for YouTube. So that way your framing is exactly the same every single time. Um, you know, like you don't have to do it all at once, but if you just kind of do it slowly over time, um, you'll end up having an entire studio. Cause even me, like I had a budget and was ready to do it, but like, I didn't do it all at once. Cause I was still trying to figure out like how exactly I wanted everything to be done. So I'd buy one light and was like, okay, that's good enough. And eventually I'll buy a hair light. And then eventually I did. And then, you know, I got some auto poles. So that way I didn't have to have C stands on the ground. I could just have everything rigged up. And What's you know, that? I just kind of did a it what? over time. An auto pole? Oh, man, this will change your life. Auto pole? Yeah. So it's by Manfrotto. It's called an auto pole. Okay. And basically, it's like it. a tension rod that you can have go from floor to ceiling or from wall to wall. And oh, wow. literally, none of my lights are touching the floor. Like, I don't have any light stands or C stands in my office. And I've got th- a three-point light li- lighting setup. We're mm. going on right now. Like I just got tired of hitting my toes on C-stands.
1: Oh, so it's it's uh, it's in the ceiling, or yeah. Like it's so on the wall. I have mine it's like, kind of it's like a, a shower uh, curtain uh, rod. Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> just
0: like a shower curtain rod, but it's designed
1: to hold yeah heavy lights. Yep, we have one of these in the Indie Mogul set, uh, and it's so great. <clears throat> Shoot, yeah. When I get, oh, I need to. I need to get some of those. Yes, that's, that's smart. That's really smart, dude. I and they're that. actually
0: cheaper than C stands. So they're they're, yeah. they're de- if you're like the using ones them, eighty
1: bucks, seventy bucks, you know, for yeah. 12
0: foot. If you're using them in a set that's never gonna move. Mm. buy them they're like the best investment i made in this entire space That's i've got no-brainer. two of them got one in front of me and i got another one behind me just out <clears throat> what do you flame. do
1: about you say you're on your black magic what do you do about the fact that like i think for youtube it, it is pretty essential to have autofocus how do you work with that so autofocus only is an issue if
0: you're moving forward or away from the camera and most of my motions take place right here i'm roughly about six or i wouldn't even say six i think i'm roughly around like five feet away from where my camera is and so uh i use a cinema lens that has markings on it so i just kind of set it to the distance and then i'm in focus nice. and again <laughs> with it being a youtube setup i have my black magic on with a 35 millimeter lens and that setup never changes so because i never move and the camera never moves when I sit down, the focus is always locked. And then I never have to deal with hunting. I'll say that ever since I left shooting on the 1DX Mark II, where I definitely got babied by having really solid <laughs> autofocus, yeah. um, I when I went over into the Sony, and then especially when I went over into the Black Magic, I went all in on manual focus. And I am, uh, un- I guess because I used I'm not gonna lie, I didn't like these people, these purists that were like, autofocus is is trash, manual focus, everything. Um, And I definitely didn't like those people. And I don't wanna say that I have become one of those people, but I definitely do find myself manually focusing, even when I have a camera that has pretty solid autofocus, um, just because there are like little inconsistencies that happen with autofocus. Where like you know, even though your subject might stay in focus, the background is just slightly pulsing. And with and when you're working with like um, photography lenses, that focus breathing is so heavy that it's like really noticeable. Versus uh, if you just manually focus, and then once it's locked, it's locked, and I don't typically have to worry about it. So that's me. I, I know, I know. I'm not like the average YouTuber who who lives and dies by by autofocus, um, but uh, I mean, I just, I don't know, manual focus. I just know what I'm going to get no matter what.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're, it's one thing to be a vlogger and and that kind of and be in that space uh, compared to what you're saying. I mean, I like I said when we first met, I was using the one DC as my main camera. I used that for like maybe two years as my main camera. Now I did have Connor. My autofocus was Connor. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> um, if you have a shooter, obviously that's not even a, an issue. Um, and that's right. where cameras like the GH5 and the S5 from Panasonic and the Blackmagic cameras, um, more affordable cameras that have way better video features come in. Because um, if you're actually operating the camera behind camera or in your case if you're just seated in a a set and you're not moving those cameras are way better bang for buck and the image quality is so much better um yeah before we started i showed you i have uh, an s5 as well um i was very surprised with this camera for both stills and video um i find the the color on it is just beautiful i love the uh the uh the slow motion obviously having uh 10 bit is wonderful and raw if you if you really want to with the Atomos recorder. What's your experience been like with that camera? I see you, you got it sitting there right there.
0: Yeah, man. It has been a surprisingly amazing camera. I This was my first ever Panasonic camera and just full disclosure, um, they did
1: send me this camera uh, yeah, to make here. a video about. <laughs> um, yeah, disclosure here as well. IndyMobile yeah, uh, got it for free from Panasonic. Yeah,
0: so I mean... I'm actually really happy that they did send it to me because truth be told, like I never wanted to give Panasonic like a chance. (laughs) Um, I just heard so many crazy things about it and I had kind of moved on to cinema cameras. So I wasn't really looking to go back to mirrorless cameras. Um, And when it came to photography, I've always just shot Canon. I was like, Canon's good. It gets the job done um but this camera is just so mind-blowing i feel like for like the first two weeks of owning it like Mm. i kept finding new features on it that would just blow my mind like one of the ones i found on here and like they gave me like a whole rundown and didn't tell me about this feature and i was kind of like irritated that they didn't tell me because it's (laughs) so revolutionary Mm. but like there's a mode on here where you can like take a photo and now granted it does take about like three to five seconds but then like after you take the photo you can change your focus point oh yeah and I was just like Mm. how does every camera not offer this (laughs) or like the fact that this camera is like compatible with being able to like de-squeeze anamorphic or you know that they did a firmware update and it's like boom all right now you got raw just go to this recorder (laughs) which I already own and I was just like it just kept blowing me away that like all the things it can do. There's like a fast burst mode that actually creates like a 6k video file, like a short form video file. Mm -hmm. And then you can pull stills out of it. And I mean, there was just like every time I just kept playing with the camera, I just kept discovering new things. And then on top of that, I honestly don't think I've ever shot with a camera that like the colors and the image out of camera looked this good i mean like i like probably my favorite camera of all time that i've ever taken photos with is a leica and i mean leicas are beautiful the images look beautiful on on like on my computer when i'm editing them i'm enjoying that process when Mm -hmm. i shoot with most other cameras to take photos the photos look good And that's just Mm -hmm. it. They just look good. They're sharp. They look good. Mm -hmm. But there's something like about the images that I've been taking with this camera specifically that the Mm -hmm. images look like dreamy. And like I just really love the color and the way the colors hold. Even if I'm like, you know, adding random presets that are technically changing the colors a bit, they Mm -hmm. still just kind of have like this dreamy look to them that I haven't seen in another camera since I shot with the Leica. And hmm. so um, I know some of that probably has to do with the fact that these lenses are also kind of uh, in partnership with Leica. <laughs> yeah, um, I was going to so say. So I'm <clears throat> sure they're using like some of the same type of glass or whatever. Um, yeah. The technology is there. But I, I mean, I'm really, really loving this camera. Hmm. It's, I mean, as far as mirrorless cameras go, it is definitely one of my favorites. The only real downside to it is. This is not a lens mount that I love, mm. but if it means that I have to go with their lenses in order to work with this system, then I think I'll be on board with it for a while.
1: Have you looked into, there's a really great, Sigma makes a really good, um, just solid EF adapter if, if you still have any EF lenses, but. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I
0: have tons of EF lenses. All my cinema lenses are EF, and I actually do have that adapter. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've been kind of testing some of my lenses with it. Obviously you lose all metadata, uh, all autofocus or lack thereof,
1: uh, autofocus that you get (laughs) from those lenses. That's Um, one of the downsides of the camera for sure.
0: Yeah. You know, it is, it, it really is a massive downside of this camera, how bad the autofocus is. And as I mentioned already, I'm not a huge autofocus user in video, um, But it's kind of one of those things where it's like, where the camera is placed at the price point, most people who are looking to spend sub $2,000 on a camera body probably also want autofocus, which is one of the reasons why it's sort of a hard camera to recommend. Um, But like if you're a professional who knows what you're doing, like this camera is probably one of the best suited cameras around the $2,000 price point. And I'm even considering like, The Blackmagic 6K is also in at that $2,000 price point. This camera just, it seems to do everything that that camera can do. Plus, it has the whole photo side of it. And neither one of them really give you usable autofocus. So, it really does give this camera kind of a slight little edge up.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. It's got a flip screen. It's got the IBIS. You know, it is full frame compared to uh, the Blackmagic. Have you tried... Uh, 1080p or shooting in the APS-C crop and trying the autofocus because it's significantly better when you go to the Super 35 crop or in 1080p. So, um, I, I remember and like when
0: I got the camera and Panasonic gave me like a full rundown. They did mention that, but it's one of those things where it's like I've got a camera that shoots 4K. I want to capture in 4K. Why should I shoot in 1080? Just to have better autofocus. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yeah, if you, if you I, need I get it, the compromise there. there because it's less for it to process, which means that it has more more yeah. uh, processing ability to actually handle the autofocus. Um, and so, I did try like a like a little vlogging test, which, as I mentioned before, not a vlogger, um, <laughs> but I did I did want to see like if I threw this in 1080p just to capture like vlog type content could it at least could it at least handle like face tracking um for me to like you know just be walking and talking with the camera and it did a pretty decent job i still see that annoying pulsing that's the thing um, panasonic has the pulsing thing yeah Yeah. and i i just can't really get over that so literally what i typically like to do especially because it has a flip out screen and with like this lens which is the 24 Mm to 70 which is plenty wide for me to be able to you know vlog on what i ended up doing was actually just manually focusing my vlog so because it's close enough i just find my focus points and you can have focus peaking turned on here which is beautiful Mm. um and then once it was locked on to me because i'm not moving the camera like drastically away from my face yeah i can just manual focus and then that just works better and then i can go back into 4k and um and it works out so i don't know i guess i i've gotten so used to being able to manually focus and figure out workarounds for manually Mm. focusing that like autofocus isn't a deal killer for me like it used to be um but it's uh it definitely is for a lot of people which is why it's hard for me to recommend the camera for some um but i still think it's a phenomenal camera especially at
1: the price Feels so good in the hand too it's got a good grip to it and uh yeah yeah i love it um, even, like, where the white balance and ISO buttons are, that's one of the things I mentioned in my review is, like, it's so perfect to just be able to quickly access your white balance and ISO. Of course, most of us shoot manual, you know, so having access to that quickly is so great. I don't know if you noticed, but, like, if you want to just crank up your ISO, you just tap the ISO button a couple times, and it, like, yeah. just goes up, which is and it so just quick. keeps
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so much about it. I mean, like, all the knobs and everything are so uh, customizable. So I've the been Ibis able to really... Amazing really dial it in and kind of make it my own um actually my editor mentioned something that i thought was really funny because um, like you can tell a lot about a camera based off of like what they choose to do with like the ergonomics of it mm-hmm. uh and one thing that he mentioned he was like you can tell they thought about filmmakers when they made this camera because if you click on the shutter button it's just like this sort of cheap plasticky little button here but the mm-hmm. record button is this like nice solid like aluminum (laughs) red shiny record button to make sure you know exactly where it is and like the budget they spent on these buttons for record versus the buttons (laughs) they spent or versus the budget they spent on the shutter button is just so much higher and it was like yes this is for filmmakers they will
1: appreciate (laughs) this well yeah i think panasonic is like self-aware enough to realize that um there's plenty of other companies uh making great hybrid cameras that are more focused on photography. So this is giving them a niche in that it's leaning more towards video than photo. But the photos, however, are still amazing. It's the same sensor as the S1. Um, I reviewed the S1H when that came out and that camera is obviously better in a lot of ways, but it's so close. I don't see why you would need to spend an extra you know, $1,400, $1,500 for that camera. You do get 6K. You get some other f- video features. It's beefier. The flip screen is nicer. But, um, yeah, I think this camera is a, a great camera. But it's hard, like you said, it's hard to recommend to people. So we've talked enough about that. Um, <laughs> moving on to my, my favorite camera right now, the Red Komodo. Uh, that was the first camera that I reviewed on Indie Mogul. And uh, I'm a huge fan of the color of that. Tell me about your journey getting into Red. I know a lot of us have been dreaming about owning a Red camera for years. So, um, tell me about you know your Red journey now that you've got the Komodo.
0: Yeah, man, it is. Uh, it has definitely been a journey. I mean, I've wanted Reds since the Red One Max mm-hmm. and everyone uh, Red One Max, and I, I just remember like thinking like this is cinema. And, like, I think at a very early age into this whole journey, you know, uh, I tell a lot of people, like, your eye gets calibrated to what you like. That's just kind of how it works. So, like, some people are, like, Canon color. Some people are, like, Sony color. And I think you just naturally get your eye calibrated and my eye got calibrated to red instantly. And it became like this long-term journey of trying to get it. I think so many people, they may say they don't really care, but I think that's the reason why like so many people are like rigging out these Sony A7S3s with like cages and monitors and V mounts and everything because they wanna get to that same level. And I know I'm 100% guilty of that. Um, And so for me getting to the red was always the journey but the nice thing is that red kind of helped me as I kept working to try to get to them they were working to get to me and like the Komodo is just like that perfect like middle ground for us because they were able to take their high end technology and make it more affordable um, and make it more versatile for like me, like the type of shooter that I am. You know, I need a camera that is, you know, can be rigged out and I can shoot high resolution. You know, decent frame rates. Give me that red color, that red raw Kodak. But then also something that can be like stripped down and thrown onto like a single hand gimbal. And that's what the Komodo really does for me. Is it's just that perfect versatile camera and the big selling point for me specifically was like as i mentioned i shot a lot with the black magic been shooting on the black magic for a couple of years now and it was a very easy switch i was able to just pretty much take the black magic out of my workflow drop the red into the workflow but now i have red raw and and it just allowed me to have that slightly better kodak And really be able to kind of just work in the exact same manner that I was working. But now I have the ability to do that with red and that that red color science, man. So
1: good, man. Yeah, the red color science is so special. It's so unique. I mean, it's really one of a kind. They design everything themselves, um, you know, somewhat. I, I know that there's some people that manufacture stuff. And I do actually think the Komodo is the first camera that they've kind of like outsourced the sensor and stuff. There's rumors floating around that it's a Canon sensor because it's the same megapixel count as the R5 uh, in Super 35. So um, Mm -hmm. it could be interesting because there were rumors that the R5 was going to actually have a global shutter. Um, That's one of the things that's really cool about the camera too that a lot of people overlook is the fact that it's a global shutter. We're so used to are cameras having rolling shutter? Can you explain in the most simple terms what a global shutter is to the audience? Yeah,
0: basically, I mean, it's a very technical term, but basically the idea is that the way that most cameras read out sensors is from top to bottom. And so what happens is when you have like a an item, like a light pole, and if the camera goes by, is it too fast? Because it's reading from top to bottom, by the time it reaches the bottom, the pole is technically moved, which tends to have like a slightly angled look or Mm -hmm. a wobble. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of people like, a lot of people thought that, you know, rolling shutter meant wobble, but that's just Mm -hmm. the outcome of a rolling shutter. And then the difference is with global shutter, it is actually taking the entire shutter at once, which means you don't get any of that lean. So your lines stay straight. And this doesn't just help you with like fast, like when the camera's actually moving fast across objects, but it also happens to help you like with objects in frame as well. It makes things look sharper. On top of that, if you freeze frame your footage at any time, you naturally are gonna have motion blur. But when you add motion blur with rolling shutter, it just looks really bad and it's really noticeable, which is the reason why if you pause a video that has really bad rolling shutter, you'll see that issue. Now, I know a lot of people say, well then if global shutter is so good, why doesn't everybody have global shutter? And that's because typically if you have global shutter, you sacrifice dynamic range. And most camera companies don't wanna do that because dynamic range is kind of what helps us to see things the way our natural eye does. And so if we start losing dynamic range, everyone's going to be mad at the camera. Like, no one's yeah. going to be satisfied with it. And I think um, ISO
1: performance also takes a hit, too.
0: At, yeah, it typically. does. But when I think that's one of the benefits of RAW, though, with the RED RAW, is because your ISO is not actually captured sensor data. Like, you're actually getting, like, the RAW data, so you can change your ISO and everything in post. And then RED figured out a way, and I don't know what... Red Magic they were able to do, but they were able to figure out a way to keep a global shutter, but then also still get 16 stops of dynamic range. And I mean, I've been testing the camera out a lot recently, actually in the middle of finishing up a video where I was comparing the Black Magic Komodo, I'm sorry, the the Red Komodo with the Black Magic Pocket 6K, and just looking at the dynamic range of RAW on both of them, and it just it's not even close there's just so much more range and so much more push and pull that you get from the image out of the komodo
1: that i mean that alone makes it a real special camera for a lot of people um even some of the higher end red cameras don't have a, a global shutter so i mean the alexa doesn't have a global shutter which is nuts um, yeah. There, it, There is a, a thing, uh, a term called motion cadence, and it's something that you can't really put your finger on, but you can feel it in the image. And there's something, the motion cadence of the Komodo with that global shutter is so unbelievably cinematic. Just, you don't notice it, but when you're hand-holding a camera uh, or you're on like a shoulder rig... There's like little tiny little movements and jitters that can happen where that rolling shutter comes into play. And you don't really see it in the image. You don't really notice it. But when you see the global shutter on the Komodo, it just has this film feel to it because film obviously isn't a rolling shutter. So right. although it, although film does, because the shutter is literally opening and closing uh, and exposing film, there is a slight amount of that rolling shutter effect, which is kind of funny. Um, even though it's film, but, um, if you remember like back in the old days, if your parents had like an old VHS camcorder, those were CCD sensors, which were global shutter sensors. So, um, when you look at like old tapes of yourself, when you're a kid, you might realize like, Oh, there's no rolling shutter in this. It's cause at the time that was the technology that they had to do, uh, to do VHS tape. So I, I always found that interesting too, that like we kind of went backwards with rolling shutter, although all these cameras have much better low light and all that compared to VHS tapes. But I think yeah, that's what's crazy about- I think it was about- a
0: sacrifice, you know? You have to, yeah. for a long time, it was like a sacrifice. Like, what's more important to the industry? And these camera companies were making that decision for yeah. us. But now, I like, I, I put out a post the other day on Instagram, and I was like, I don't think we found the perfect camera yet. But I think we're getting pretty dang close. <laughs> we are um, the A7s three like, is pretty
1: close, honestly. For
0: that me. that that camera's it's 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 up there. I think it's yeah. really really close. I, I do. There's a couple yeah. little things that I'm missing from it, but that's just me as a cinema <laughs> camera. Like I primarily prefer a cinema camera, and the FS the FX6 didn't quite do it for me. Mm. The C70 is oh yes. my goodness, it is like it's just missing like i mean really (laughs) it's missing raw which is just like i understand why it's not there um yeah because it would cannibalize everything um do that but but yeah no i
1: totally totally understand yeah i mean while we're on the topic of c70 going from komodo uh they're both super 35 you know sensors they both have a canon rf mount but they really couldn't be more different it's it really is depending on your style of work and depending on what type of stuff you're doing it would dictate which one you want they're roughly the same price if you're somebody that needs autofocus if you're somebody that needs a built in kind of everything with indie you know audio inputs flip screen all that then the c70 is the way to go if you want just kind of the best cinema quality image then the red Komodo is the way to go um I mean, yeah. as as past 1DC user myself and a 1DX Mark II user yourself, uh, I feel like the C70 is the perfect upgrade from that kind of generation of cameras that you and I probably always dreamed of having.
0: Yeah, I mean, the 1DC was like a dream camera at a point, and I loved that camera. I loved the idea of having that camera. Um, but I think, you know... I, so I'm actually, so this is kind of like an insider scoop because I'm literally in the process of finishing up my Red Komodo versus C70 video. And I'm still working out some of the, some of the last little bits of dialogue as far as like what I wanted to, how I want to say it. But what my general thought behind these two cameras are is if you are looking for a cinema camera with function, the C70 is the way to go. But if you want the best sensor for six thousand dollars, then the Red Komodo is the way to go. And I think it's just it's it's just a it's just a, a mindset, you know. I I look at myself personally, and I own you know uh, matte boxes. I have ND filters. I record my audio externally. Um, you know, I know how to pull focus. Manually, and I also have a wireless autofocus system or a manual focus system. So, if I wanted to have a camera assistant to pull focus for me, I could. So, the Red Komodo for me is an easy plug and play because all the things that the C70 gives me, I already have those things solved in another form, and now I can spend my money on the sensor. Um, but when you, if you don't have those things or you don't want to spend the money on those things and you're trying to get the most function out of a camera, the C70 is a phenomenal camera with all the function you can almost want out of a camera minus raw. Um, but I will say, and this is again, this is just me. And this is again, me calibrating my eye when I shoot the exact same scene with a C70 and then I shoot the same scene with a Komodo, there is just something that says like the C-70 looks like a video and the Komodo looks like a film. And I can't really put my finger on why. I can sort of say it's like, you know, the Komodo Red has this way of adding some more contrast to the image, which ultimately feels like it's adding more weight to it. But I I don't know exactly what it is. But I will say that that is kind of been my personal kind of feel with the two cameras. And I I had the Komodo, I mean, I'm sorry, I had the the C70 for a week and a half just to test it and check it out and and put it through its paces and actually took it out on some professional jobs and made some massive mistakes with it. But then that learned from those two. And at the end of the day, Like if I had both cameras and somebody had to tell me like all right you gotta ship one of them back to the rental site and the other one you can keep, I'm gonna keep the Komodo all day. Even though it's not giving me as much as the C seventy technically is. Yeah.
1: It's it's the logical choice to do C seventy if you're just cranking out like a lot of content. You know, you're doing courses or even, I think, a, a full-time YouTuber, it makes more sense to go C70. Um, but just because something makes sense doesn't mean you should do it either. Uh, there's there is something that I know you have talked about on your channel that I agree with, too, and that's you want to pick tools that inspire you, that, that make you you know happy to look at the picture. And if you're willing to put in the work and the extra effort to, to use that Komodo with the manual focus and all that... Um, then have at it like be my guest you don't you know you don't have to get the camera that makes everything perfectly easy it's almost kind of fun when you have to kind of work for it and make your camera work uh it's more satisfying when you see the result and it's actually good yeah i tell people it's like you know there's two types of home buyers out there there are people who
0: want to buy a turnkey house that they move in and they're done and there's some people who don't mind a fixer-upper and that's kind of like the difference like the c70 is definitely that turnkey camera it's got everything you need it's already done and the komodo although it's not turnkey i feel like because you can do a lot extra with it and kind of put your stamp on it you can actually get something that's a lot more truer to you and you can make something that's a little bit
1: more unique um just like buying a fixer upper house exactly what what's your workflow now now you've got this editor how, do, how does it work for your youtube videos how, what's how does that work do, are they local and do you dropbox them stuff what, you know what's your so workflow? my
0: editor is local but um once covid and everything hit you know we tried to do our own precautions now granted we live in texas so things are a little more open than they are in other places of the world um but I will say that one of the biggest uh, kind of investments I made in the editing space was moving to a NAS system. I had no idea what a NAS system was and didn't really like invest a whole lot into it at first. Um, but I realized really quickly like how valuable it was. It was kind of like having my own little Dropbox system set up here at the house. Um, and the nice part is when it working with my editor, I can quickly take like a 100 gigs worth of footage and transfer it to my NAS in just a matter of minutes. And then at my editor's own time, whenever he's ready, his internet's ready, It could do it overnight, he can then pull all of the raw files down and actually be able to edit them. Um, I'm not a huge fan of editing from proxies. I feel like it just adds some unnecessary steps And we invest quite a bit of money in our computers to make sure that they're powerful enough to be able to handle the actual raw files. And so I like to just send him the full raw files as well as, um, and then once he's done with the video, he will then send me the completely exported out video. So it saves the step of me sending him proxies, him sending me back the edited, then me having to export it um, I just—it's just a simpler system, and the NAS is really what kind of unlocked that whole system for
1: us. Oh, okay. I need to look into that. What can you tell me specifically? Which system you're using? What NAS?
0: Uh, we're going with one of the Synology ones. Um, I'll be honest—I'm not a super technical person, so I did what probably everybody else does, and I went on YouTube and typed in "what is a NAS" and kind of started from there. Um, but I will say that the one that I went with. We have, uh, it's a four bay drive and I've got four six terabyte drives in it. Uh, I've got it set up as a RAID 5 so that way one of the drives is actually not functional, um, but it's also giving me like solid backup. So if anything happens, um, I can always just swap out one of those uh, drives. I went with the actual uh, Iron Wolf NAS hard drives um, and I went with the pro version. Just because I figured, you know, with the quality and the amount of content that I'm going to be uploading, and then the fact that like my NAS never turns off, it's always running. It's connected directly into my mesh network system um, here at the house. So, because I knew I was never going to turn it off or the drives would just constantly spin unless they went into like a hibernation mode, um, I wanted to make sure I had drives that were really going to last.
1: That's sick. Cool. Did you do a video on that yet?
0: Not yet. It's one of those topics where I'm like I'm definitely not an expert on it. Um so I have to figure out the like I almost have to get my education up. I as I mentioned earlier like yes, yeah, sometimes you can like make mistakes and get away with them, but I never want to lead people astray. Like I feel like that's like a huge like issue. Like you don't want to just like straight lie to people or only give them half the information if you because you don't know the other half and there are tons of topics of stuff that i'm doing here at the studio that maybe i'm not the best person to talk about it and so i just say you know there are other youtube channels out there um if i can i'll find the video that i watched and then i'll send it to you and then maybe you can link it or something
1: like that yeah yeah i love that um so what what have been some of the findings that you've had recently now that you've been more consistent on YouTube? What are some of the things that you're seeing that are working? Some things that aren't working just tips and tricks you can share with our audience. Cause there's, there's definitely a lot of uh, creators who listen to this podcast. Um, so I've learned that like recently the biggest
0: revelation I had about YouTube is one, all of the basic things that everyone has been talking about forever, they work. And you just got to do them. (laughs) And I know it sounds like super simple, but they just do. Like consistency. It just works. Mm -hmm. You know, focusing on your titles and your thumbnails. It works. When you do those things, they work. And when you try to come up with like all these other like tricks that are like, you got to use these exact tags or you want to try to post at this exact time slot or, you know, you got to make sure that you're creating this type of content and it's got to be clickbaity and all these things. It's like, those things don't really work as well. They may be like a one-off thing, but they're not sustainable. Yeah. And so what I've learned is that like, and I actually learned this from listening to another podcast when Mr. Beast was on and he was like, YouTube wants people to watch videos, right? That's what they want. So first step is you got to give them videos. Okay, cool. <laughs> Start making videos. And then if people don't like the title and the thumbnail, doesn't matter how awesome your video is, they're never going to click on it. Yep. So this is the reason why your title and your thumbnail are actually more important than the quality of your video because if the title and thumbnail are garbage, you can have the most amazing edited video. There could be like another... Casey out there, or another Peter McKinnon out there, or you insert your favorite YouTuber here, there could be another one of those people out there putting out the exact same quality of videos, but if their titles and their thumbnails are just garbage, no one will ever click on it and watch it. Yep. And so that, that kind of paywall, the quote unquote paywall of the title and thumbnail are crucial. And so that was another one of those simple things that really just kind of made a lot of sense to me and I've been kind of implementing. So it was make videos, get my titles and thumbnails right, and then it was start making better videos. Mm. Um, Because one thing, I, I, I guess, I think it was Marquez, he actually tweeted it and it kind of just affirmed my thought, which is that every video that you publish is potentially someone's season uh premiere for your vi- for your channel, right? Yeah. And so it's it is the um it is the pilot. Every video that you publish is the pilot to your channel. It's the first time someone might find you. And if that video is not good, then they're not going to go back and watch episode 2 when you upload your next video next week. Mm-hmm. And that really hit home for me. Uh, as I've been continuing to try to make my videos better because I realized that like if someone watches one of my videos and it's not good, they're not going to give me another chance because they don't mm. know me, right? Mm. But then the same thing happens to where your videos have to kind of keep to either a consistent quality or they have to consistently keep getting better. And this is where as a creative, you have to challenge yourself and kind of humble yourself and say like, you know, the video is not really that good. Um, am I just putting it out to put it out because that can actually do more damage to you because I know there are tons of TV shows that I tried to give a chance. And because I caught one bad episode, I wrote the whole TV show off.
1: Yeah.
0: And you know, but the same way is if you get a show and you watch one episode and it's amazing, you watch the next episode, it's also amazing. Now you're hooked Yeah, and you feel like you, you, you don't want to miss the next episode and Marquez is one of those people who I really look up to in that manner because all of his videos are very well done Mm -hmm. and even if I don't like he makes videos about Android phones and I'm very strongly an iPhone user and I'll watch some of his Android videos just because the quality of the videos are good Mm -hmm. even though I know I have probably no opportunity or no chance of me ever wanting to buy that Android phone just watching high quality content is is you know it's good and i enjoy yeah. that and so that therefore i keep going back and so those were the mm. things for me it was just keep it a lot more simple just make videos focus on my thumbnails and my titles and mm. then just keep crafting better videos look at the yeah. last one and try to make something a little better and like it doesn't have to be a massive jump it just has to just be a little tweak if I can mm. just keep tweaking them and making them a little bit better. Okay, people fell off at this point. All right, why did they fall off? All right, tweak. Okay, yep. why did they fall off in the next one? Tweak. And if yep. I can keep doing that and paying attention, I've seen mm. just in the last couple of months just like massive explosion of growth. Dude, um, yeah. awesome. And now it's just stay true to that. Don't try to go crazy or do anything nuts or upload every day or something dumb that I can't sustain. Like yeah. just do what I'm doing and keep tweaking, doing what I'm doing and keep tweaking.
1: Absolutely. yeah. This journey is a, it's a long, you know, it's, it's not something that you can just figure out overnight. And like you keep saying, and just based on my experience too, you make a video, put it out there. Don't sit around trying to like perfect it. It's just a waste of time to do that. You can make it as good as you possibly can, but there is an acceptable level of quality that you can get to to upload and then go make another one and look at the analytics and you know like you said make changes along the way that's really how it works and one quick tip that I'm noticing you're doing here is you're keeping your titles like in that um 50 to 60 character limit so I've noticed like all of your titles now I can read the whole thing it doesn't have the dot 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 you know at the end yeah um that's something that I'm noticing nine months ago you were doing longer titles and so I'm not able to read the whole title and so that's awesome that you've you know transitioned into doing that now because it's it's really easy to you know do especially for gear reviews because the cameras are like big names and there's letters and all sorts of numbers attached to the cameras it's easy to have a big title but if you can simplify your titles to where within 50 characters or so you can actually get your point across and entice people i think that's great and i'm sure you're seeing success from that like your thumbnails and titles have been getting better so um, yeah
0: absolutely
1: it's pretty cool how it works Uh, another thing that i'm trying to figure out how to do is like i i built you know kinetika and it was really just a gear review channel and i feel like um I missed out a lot on the personality aspect and people connecting on a personal level. And so that's the thing on a gear and tech review channel. Like you're saying with Marquez, you're so kind of, you love him. So you're willing to watch an Android phone review that you have no interest in buying. That's the ultimate win is like potato jet in our industry. I think is one of the best personalities. Uh, He's been able to, and Kai W and even Peter McKinnon as well. Like, people just watch everything they make because they know I love this person. I love hanging out with this person on YouTube. They're so funny or, you know, in Peter's case, you know, he's very entertaining to watch. Um, how are you interjecting personality and trying to, you know, get into that world? Cause it's hard to, when you, when you're talking about tech, at least for me, I can just get into the numbers and letters and I forget to like relate on a personal level.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I'll tell you, like, this is something that I'm still working on. Um, But the one thing that I never want to do is be unauthentic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, like, I think I have a decent sense of humor, but I don't think I'm as funny as Potato Jet. So I'm not going to try to, you know. Um, And I think you just have to find what is unique about you. You know, one thing that I've done on my channel a lot, especially in the past, and now I'm kind of even getting back into it a little bit, is just like giving like industry and business related advice. It's not funny, but it's really informative. And for people who need that, I found that it's like it makes a real impact in them. And I think that's really all it is. You know, it's the whether it's you're funny or you are, you know, you have um, some type of charismatic, like, mindset or or just like the way you are on camera I think all it is is impact and what you have to do is figure out like what's the easiest or what's the best way for you to make an impact on your viewers and for some people that is just pure knowledge like Gerald Undone is one of those people he knows so much and throws so many like specs and facts and numbers at you but sometimes I'm lost trying to watch (laughs) his video and I have to almost watch it twice which is really good for him because it helps his view count (laughs) Um, but I will say like he makes an impact on a lot of his viewers just because of the amount of information that he's able to give. I wouldn't say that he's necessarily like a funny guy, but he can make an impact in that way. And for me, all I can do is make an impact by being who I am and offering whatever I can offer. And I found that for like my audience that this has worked out really well for me. And so it's about really just being true to who you are. And you know, if you have something that's interesting about you, and your audience is like, "Whoa, wait a minute, we want to know more about that," then you you let them know. I mean, for the longest time, I didn't talk about the fact that I shot real estate because personally, I thought it was kind of boring, um, and I didn't really think it was interesting. I didn't think people would care. And I did a video where I kind of let it slip, and somebody was like, "Wait, tell us more about that." And then, you know told them a little bit more and then started making videos about it. And then ultimately people wanted like a full fledged training course on it. And it like sparked a whole new avenue for my business because I just listened to my audience and tried to make the impact I wasn't trying to be funny in any of those things or charismatic I was just trying to figure out what's the easiest and best way for me to make an impact on my viewers and you know my experience so far has been one of the the easiest ways sharing that
1: experience has been the easiest way for me to make an impact totally and I mean Marquez like you said again he's not um he's not funny, you know, per se. He's just authentically himself and that's what and he's not even that charismatic. Um but it's it's you become almost friends with that person on the internet. It's crazy how Yeah, I think it's just it the
0: truth. You know you're getting the truth from him. Yeah. And so that again, that's the impact. You just mm-hmm. know you're getting his truth. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's a social media platform. People forget that and even though YouTube is kind of replacing television. It's the creators who really succeed. It's not the companies, you know, it's not the Jimmy Kimmel's of, uh, of YouTube per se that are really crushing it. It's, uh, people like Marquez and people like Casey and, um, David Dobrik and Logan Paul, these personalities that are just Mega, you know, Mr. Beast, obviously. Um, we were watching. What were we watching? We were watching Master Chef last night, my wife and I. And the grand prize winner wins a quarter of a million dollars. And you know what I said to Laura? I was like, "Oh, cool. That's like a quarter of what Mr. Beast gives away each video." <laughs> it's like <laughs> right. It's it's yeah. insane how mu- how much of an impact these YouTubers have now to where television is looking like nothing compared to what youtube is doing now. Um it's pretty exciting. Um obviously we didn't even touch on your production stuff. Um you are a full-time production what do you what do you want to call yourself? You, you own a production company. Uh, I own a production
0: company. Yeah. So
1: yeah. I own a production company. I'm a director.
0: Uh, dp is kind of those my my two main crafts so i'm either directing projects that are coming through the door for my production company or i'm dp'ing for other uh directors and creators around the houston area yeah. um but i mean i pretty much can do it all i grip i you know yeah DTI, well my question is
1: <laughs> my question to you and to a lot of the other guys i've interviewed on this show who do both like it, are you intentionally doing both because you like both or do you have aspirations to phase that out and do YouTube full time? Or like, you're obviously putting a lot of effort into YouTube. So do you have more passion in that or do you want to do both? Yeah. I mean, so,
0: so the goal for 2020 was actually to go in on YouTube full time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I made a lot of like systematic moves to make that happen. And ironically, Uh, the pandemic and everything else actually helped some of those things so when all of my production business stopped and I had to stop working for three months because that's how long our shutdown was here in Texas um, I took that time and was able to build like an entire learning and training course platform and that was to help make YouTube more feasible To make it more financially stable. Uh, As I mentioned, I also brought in an editor, someone who I could trust to help me to crank out more YouTube videos. I mean, the ultimate goal is if he can edit two videos a week, I can edit one video a week. We're posting three times a week. And I mean, that's the type of consistency I would love to have on YouTube. Um, And, you know, building out this entire studio i mean a lot of the moves that i made in 2020 even though i didn't necessarily reach the goal of going youtube full time um, because i still needed that commercial projects and stuff like that just because the budgets are just vastly different um but the goal going into 2021 is to finish that initial plan and i didn't let you know any of the hurdles of you know this last season, Um, really slow me down. If anything, it gave me more opportunity. The biggest thing is now I have solved all of my technical issues and now it's just about putting in the work. Like I said, the studio is done. The lights are up. uh, The editor is in place. Like the content is now, it's just a matter of getting it out there. Uh, And so, I mean, I would like to say that I will go 100% in on YouTube but part of me still enjoys shooting the right projects. I think the benefit of YouTube and being a full-time YouTuber, but someone who can also do commercial projects is if you can make your living off of YouTube and you can run your business that way, it allows you to be a little bit more selective about the commercial projects that come across. And you don't just have to take everything, which I've definitely been in that season in my life where you take anything and everything and if anybody wants you to point a camera at it, you just do it and just try to collect that next check. but I'm blessed to be able to say that I'm not actually at that stage anymore and I can be a little more selective, but I just hope that in the next year, YouTube can become more of a full-time deal and I can be even more selective. And it was actually you who inspired me to really work as hard as I have been. Because I remember when I was in LA and I met you and you told me 50K, that's the number. When you get to 50K, everything changes. Yeah, and i man. was like i was like okay and i didn't believe you and you were like just hire an editor and work and like go into the like go into the I was black like,
1: dang it brandon like, just do it you're <laughs> like just
0: just hire an editor go into debt whatever it takes just get to 50k and everything changes and i was like no it doesn't and i have started to see like at 50k things are starting to to make a difference and yeah. and like the channel is financially viable like mm-hmm. I'm not losing money making YouTube, even hiring out help mm-hmm. and hire- and paying for gear and things like that. Um, and I just hope to see that to continue to grow yeah. because I do like the impact that I'm able to see that other YouTubers are able to do. You know, Mm -hmm. like I like how Mr. Beast is able to help the people around him and plant trees and make a cultural impact as well. And I would love to be able to say that, like, I could do the same thing in Mm -hmm. my own little niche with filmmakers or up and coming filmmakers or giving people gear or whatever it is. Helping people out is a really big part of what I want to do. Yeah. And I feel like it's like you don't see like other big filmmakers or commercial directors really being able to have those resources to do that. But YouTubers do. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I look at YouTube as a platform that maybe is going to give me a bit more reach than just doing commercial projects and owning a production business here in the Houston area really would.
1: Absolutely, man. I think that's a great way to end it. Uh, Amazing podcast today with uh, Brandon Washington. Everybody go over to youtube.com slash bwash712. Is that right? or just go just yeah search it's one washington. of those
0: yeah just look up brandon washington that's one of those that's like one of my regrets is that like i set my uh set my youtube name and now i can't change it so i'm just stuck with it
1: oh uh, i um i emailed them one time and uh they changed it for me so really Put yeah yeah, yeah
0: you gotta send me that you gotta send me that information
1: <laughs> i think i just did a google search on like url change on youtube and then it was like a support page on google and um I was able to um, tell like, remember when I did my name change from Dave Altizer yeah. to Mays? Dave Maze. Yeah. I, I had youtube.com slash Dave Altizer and I was like, Hey, it would be great if I could change it to this. I've changed my name and they're like, okay, cool. It's done. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll hook you up. I guess I, I'll just do a Google search and send you the link, but um... yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I
0: would love to change that. I'm be Wash media everywhere else. Yeah. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I mean, you name it, it's out there. (laughs) It's BeWash Media everywhere except YouTube. Uh, And so, yes, in the future, I will get that changed.
1: All you got to do is search your name and it pops right up. So thanks again, Brandon, for being on the show today. And uh, we'll have to have you on maybe a year from now, follow up, see how things are going. And, um, yeah, hopefully another pandemic will not ensue and we'll have a solid, amazing year in 2021. So thanks for your time, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Brandon Washington. Again, a reminder, we have a new YouTube channel. Even if you prefer the audio format, would you please consider subscribing? We want to build up our subscriber base there for people who are interested in this show. Go over. It's linked down in the show notes below. I'm trying to promote it because it's brand new and we're just getting started here. So this episode with Brandon was a lot of fun to edit. Uh, He shot on his Blackmagic camera and I shot on my Olympus camera and it looks pretty decent. I do have a green screen behind me in it and it's kind of silly because I am in my closet so uh, we are moving into a new house in the next couple of weeks and I will actually be building a custom set for the golden hour show so be on the lookout for that because that'll be a lot of fun for sure Again, I'd like to thank Brandon for being on this episode of the podcast. If you haven't already gone over to PolarPro.com to check out some of the incredible products that we have for sale there, go over there and check it out. Once again, I'm your host, Dave Mays. This is the Golden Hour Podcast, and we'll see you next Tuesday.